know what that means? Everything. Anglo-thieves. Gettle's gone. Oh my god, you people have just failed me. Failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland. We have just gone full Episode 32 of Anglophies, where we're going to talk about art, because we're classy as fuck. That's how we roll here in Anglophies Industries, made of failed productions stuff. I just got home like 14 hours ago from the Romantic Time Book Lovers Convention, so I'm exhausted and will probably ramble. Hi, I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. And uh, before we get into art with a capital R, uh, we have some updates on Twin Peaks. Elena, go ahead. <laughs> David Lynch has won the social media PR wars. <laughs> we know this because he's back on board. I, I think that's an outcome I would have predicted. There's too much yeah. public sentiment behind him and almost none of it was behind Showtime. So, Yeah. Like, nobody's going to be behind a company when the auteur says they're not giving me enough money to realize my vision. The people who care are going to be like, give him the monies. (laughs) Show him the money. And apparently they did. Good for them. Hey. Right. We we need to get you money so you both can come (laughs) to RT next year. That would be awesome. It's I listen to the podcast. Oh, God. These be all my bitches. Yep. Yeah, oh my god. Yeah, that's gonna, there, you should listen to the the Smart Bitches podcast we recorded while we were there. But there oh, was a cover okay. model who came into the YA slumber party on Monday night after the cover model Texas two-step party. He was pretty drunk. And this is me telling you Elise's story he came up to a table of 10 women said i don't know if i need oxygen or viagra but i need one of the two and they were like "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm and then he asked who was the token lesbian because it was a table of about 10 women oh yeah (laughs) at which point elise was like thinking do you have some place to go? Do we need to get you a blankie? Are we going <laughs> to find you curled up in the parking lot, huddled under your suede coat? Like, what's happening here? And it was a good time. And you should listen to our podcast that we recorded, the DBSA podcast we recorded at RT, which was kind of the hangover edition because the night before we had all gone out to dinner and had lots of pretty strong margaritas <laughs> and scared the crap out of some dudes who were sitting at the next table <laughs> in our discussions of that started off sober and you know very reasonable of straight women writing male male romance which then got progressively less academic <laughs> as the booze flowed 
So that was fun. They left really fast. <laughs> the dudes did. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about RT. We're here to talk about art. Nice. I know. That a was plus. that was a, a plus seg. <laughs> <laughs> so for our listeners, you don't know this, but sometimes we get together on Skype and just link each other pictures. Mm-hmm. And we can spend the whole day doing this. And then we decided we could do this for people who listen to the podcast. We could totally merge the audio and visual media into yep. one. And it's let, let's hope it doesn't crash and burn. <laughs> it might, but you're definitely going to want to take a look at the show notes, yeah. which you can find at net for pictures of all of the art that we're talking about. Um, for people who will try to describe as best we can for people who are, say, listening on their commute or something. Um, and we will also link each image in our Twitter feed. And probably also on Tumblr, just to cover all the bases. And on Tumblr. It'll, it will be more of an effort than what we usually do when we have these discussions, which is, hey, look at this picture click oh that's shiny that's very pretty look at this picture right so this is kind of an experiment but uh we'll see how it works out it's something we all have an awful lot of opinions on and it's such a strange wide-ranging topic so let's give it a go let's give it a go i'll start okay so I took this as an opportunity to visit the Art Gallery of Ontario, which I've never actually been to before. And I don't think I've ever discussed it on the show. I might have mentioned the Royal Ontario Museum, but not this one, because the ROM is, it's not art specific. It's got all sorts of installations, but Art Gallery of Ontario is really, is, is just art. Uh, it's First of all, let me start with the building, because it was renovated fairly recently, either 2006, 2008, I think. And it's by Frank Gehry, I should mention, um, the architect. And unlike the disastrous space monster eating the ROM renovation, this one actually resulted in a building that's a bit of a work of art on its own. And there's the first link of the day. So beautiful space. And I didn't do this on purpose in terms of timing of the episode, but it also turned out to be the closing days of the Jean-Michel Basquiat exhibit. I think I actually made it on the very last day. So it, it was a great experience. So I'm going to talk about the Basquiat installations first uh, and then go into the, the general exhibits that are there full time. The one thing is, I because of the way things turned out, I ended up going, I was pretty tired from the day before. And Basquiat is a very challenging artist. And some of his stuff, you, you could spend hours on just, you know, one piece. So it was a little bit surreal and overwhelming, but a few of the pieces still stood out with just how much emotional impact they have. So I'm going to mention a few of the favorites that I had. This one is <laughs> for for all the Anglophies fans. He has one self-portrait that I saw and I immediately thought of the Hannibal Wendigo. <laughs> so let's see if my co-hosts agree. It is just in one color, black. Um, the canvas isn't pure white. There's some shades of whiting on, on the canvas, but it's really just a black outline of him and all you oh, can see are the eyes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It was one of my favorite pieces because of its simplicity, but I also think you could just 
I could just look at it, stand there and look at it and really enjoy it. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it was definitely one of my, my, one of my favorites there. It was an exhibit kind of laid out in multiple rooms. It was mostly paintings is the wrong thing to call them because some of these were more collage type uh, installations, but it only included a couple of pieces of video. Uh, mostly it was just something that you could be mounted on the wall. There was kind of a layout that, that herded you through multiple rooms. And in one of the first ones, one of the first paintings I saw that really made me stop and look was his portrait of um, a Vietnam War veteran. I think it was a homeless man, if I'm remembering the description correctly. And before reading the description, I remember just stopping and going, this is a very sad man. Like you could just see, for those who maybe haven't seen Basquiat before, this he doesn't paint in realism, right? Like his, I, I don't know the correct art term for his style. Uh, it certainly is very distinct, but it's very far from realism. It's not exactly abstract, but it's on that level. So when you see a painting that conveys a human emotion just with such clarity, it, it really makes you stop and look. So that one I spent some time on just to, starting with that one. I really started gaining appreciation of the art as I went on. In both of these are, um, are examples of a kind of more straightforward things he did because the one thing Basquiat is not as straightforward. I could see him being influenced a lot by the pictures we see of like frescoes from ancient Egypt because a lot of his stuff is a lot of symbols like kind of repeating. I remember this one just pencil sketch I stood in front and it was several symbols. It was untitled as a lot of the stuff was just symbols in pencil repeating over and over on a, on a picture almost like a hieroglyph wall. One of the more challenging pieces I'm going to link <laughs> to Kaylee and Rain here is this big collage. And it's one of those you you have to stay and look at it. Like you can't just walk past the museum and be like, oh, I saw a Basquiat painting. No, because it's a collage of maybe 20 paintings. <laughs> you want to say you've really experienced it. You're going to stand there and look at it. And this is part of the reason I was kind of regret not finding a time when I couldn't go tired because when you're already a little bit uh, physically and emotionally exhausted, it's just, oh my God, your inner world is a little too complex and overwhelming for me right now. <laughs> this is probably why some of the simpler stuff made a bit of a bigger impact. Um, not that there wasn't like a good balance of these really overwhelming collages with more straightforward things. There was one, I believe it was called Chinese New Year. Let me see if I can remembering the name of it correctly but it I guess I just really like it when he does when he uses a lot of black and just uses like black outlines let me see if you guys like this one. Oh, I like that a lot this actually that's very striking this is so not my kind of art at all <laughs> well, this, this is very much my kind of art I, I love abstract angry simply deceptively simple art that really pisses off old white men <laughs> And Basquiat pissed off a lot of old white men. So. Oh, I imagine. Uh, Chinese New Year is a piece that is on three uh, boards. I think it's wood mounted. So it's almost like a triptych in some ways. And the words Chinese New Year are one per board. Uh, and the boards are pure black. The words Chinese New Year are in red. And the middle board contains a picture of... I, I kind of see it as part of it as a bunny that is also maybe a mask for a person's angry face. I don't know if it was the year of the rabbit. I'm not sure 
which of the Chinese zodiac might have particularly inspired this figure. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out and limb and say it was the year of the rabbit because that's what it looks like. But uh, I remember I'm trying to remember the label because some of them like explain some paintings. Some of them were just kind of oh this is the medium and then I want to say the label might have mentioned the year of the bull. So I'm not oh year of the boar. Okay, so this one's year of the boar. I don't know. I don't see it, but I'm not the I like it a lot anyway. <laughs> regardless of which of the Chinese zodiac animals you see in it. Uh, I just really like the white, black, and red color combination. I think this painting is just uses really effectively. So that was the bulk of my visit, is wandering the Basquiat exhibit. There's also um, included in the exhibit, which is called Now's the Time, based on a painting he did on wood that is meant to look like a vinyl. I believe it was... It was actually referencing a specific vinyl record. I don't remember now which one at the top of my head, but that and then that was the name of the exhibit. And it also included one photograph of Basquiat that I really like. So the photog I can't remember if it was the photographer or just the man whose house it was taken, but they gave him a jacket to put over his paint splattered clothes. So you have him sitting in a fairly kind of decadent, high-end atmosphere. So, you know, the but the pants are all paint splattered, but the jacket's kind of, you know, a more fancy and, and sharp, and he's looking straight at the camera. It's a really great photograph of him. Um, I don't have a link on hand because it's not included in, um, in the booklet I bought of the exhibit so I could remember all the paintings, but I'll definitely find it for the show notes just because I think it was a really great photograph. So, yeah, so that was the bulk of my visit which I wandered back out into the the building. And the building is really great and, like, lets in lots of light because it's lots of um, outside, like, floor-to-ceiling windows. Uh, took a breath and then went into the rest of the museum. Now, it does have a pretty great kind of, um, I don't know what the word is, their stable collection, the one that are not traveling exhibitions. Uh, it got a lot from the Thompson family, which was a big uh, media-owning conglomerate. They sold off most of their uh, their media enterprises by now, but they had a... Uh, in 2006, when the head of the family passed away, he bequeathed a really large amount of his artworks to the museum. And it includes... There's the Canadian collection, which is both uh, Native Canadian art, you know, First Nations art, and kind of 18th to 19th century... Colonial, colonial pieces about Canada. There's also a contemporary art in the European collection. And I was wandering around, and as a palette cleanse to the more serious basket exhibit, let me just show you guys this hilarious painting I found. This was part of the Canadian, and I found a painter that I actually really liked, and this was, I want to say, 19th century so he was uh, life in I guess mostly Quebec and he had a painting of an Arctic explorer I'm gonna go ahead and say who's wearing furry leopard print pants which is just I don't know I stood at it and looked at it for like five minutes and going like wow I, I hope those pants kept you warm but they for certain kept you fabulous now that not only is that fabulous trousers, but the hat, the scarf, the, the entire combination going on there, and what looks like an iPad bag—that's really fabulous. There's nothing about that I don't like. 
the Arctic Explorer in leopard print pants. Furry, furry, I'd like to pronounce. So it's just, that is how you should explore the Arctic, no? And really well-fitted leather pants, uh, leopard pants. You know, th- those were tailored. <laughs> Did you manage to see the Massacre of the Innocents? Because I know that's there. I believe it's there anyway. Um... Because I know the Thompson family bought it, and it was one of the most yeah, expensive things of all time. Yeah, the Master of the Innocence is there. Um, I haven't, because I think by the time I got to that section of the museum, I noticed... I didn't see it. Because I, by the time I got to that section, I didn't realize that Waterhouse's Lady of Shalott, I'm Half Sick of Shadows, was in there. And when I saw that, everything else kind of went out of my head, and like, I, why did I not know about this when I was 16? Yeah, that's one of the paintings for anybody who, who likes the Lady of Sh- Waterhouse's Lady of Shalad paintings. That one was there. And I just walked into the room, saw it, and kind of blue screened for a second. And then, But I know this piece of art because, you know, when I was a teenager, I was all about Waterhouse's Lady of Shalad paintings. How did I not know that I could just go and see the painting? It's a bit of an experience from um, seeing it on the internet, which is how I see most of my art. Yeah, I, I do envy the fact that you have got to go to an art gallery because I haven't really had the chance to go to one since I was in Edinburgh, so at least a couple of years now. And there really is no experience quite like seeing art in person. You can see the brushstrokes, you can get right up close. You see all the work that goes into it, particularly the really large pieces. It's truly overwhelming. Yeah. The same room that contains the Lady of Shalad also contains the uh, a portrait I swear I've heard of before uh, the Marchesa Casati and that's another one that stops you because she's a very beautiful woman with bright red hair her portrait kind of hangs in the middle of this big wall of paintings she looks kind of like Christina Hendricks wow she actually really does (laughs) is that how Mad Men's going to end? yes Christina Hendricks' character is a Marchesa. That works. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know Weiner wishes he'd come up with that. Yeah. He'll still write his creepy son into it. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, we actually are recording this at a really interesting time because just this week, uh, the most expensive painting ever sold at auction happened. And it was uh, Picasso's Women of Algiers. And it sold for $179 million. Which, um, well, I don't need to tell you that's a lot of money, but, but it's not even the most that's been paid for a painting. It's just the most at auction. And I'm kind of obsessed with when art make, is sold for that amount of money. Because there's part of me that finds it really fascinating. I can't watch it. I can't look away from it. And then there's other part that I'm, I think it's completely obscene. And goes against the whole point of art in the first place. Not that art has ever been solely this, you know, thing you do based solely on the art. And you do it because you have to. And you have this wonderful, you know, feeling you have to express. You know, every artist has had patrons. Every artist has done something for money. That's nothing new. Mm -hmm. But when I went to look up who had bought this painting, this really beautiful piece by Picasso. um, I'm a big Picasso fan anyway. So when I went to see who bought it it said private collector and that's the thing that worries me because if you look at who the most expensive paintings in the world were bought by increasingly they are bought by billionaires usually russian the qatari royal family are private collectors and then they're never seen again 
not at least in public. They may be rented out to a gallery for a couple of months, but then they're returned to, I don't know, hang in Roman Abramovich's bathroom or something. Because um, the most famous cases happened with, most infamous, was the portrait of Dr. Gachette, the very famous Van Gogh painting of the doctor. Um, if you don't know, recognize the name, you'll recognize the painting. And it was sold to a Japanese businessman in the early 90s. And this was when the market was about to crash. He ended up losing all of his money. And the rumor that floated around for the longest time was that he burned the painting. This painting that he paid about something like, oh, it was close to $100 million for it. And the rumor was he set it on fire. Out of sheer spite? Um, I believe so. I think it's hard to tell. The other famous example is the Picasso painting Le Rêve, which was bought by Steve Wynn, who's a um, big Vegas billionaire. He owns a bunch of the hotels on the Strip. And he decided to sell this painting. At the time he was losing his eyesight, he accidentally tripped and put his elbow through the painting. Which horrifies me on so many levels. They have since, of course, restored the painting and it did sell mm-hmm. for a lot of money. But, wow, the, the, the playthings of the ultra-rich are now just, like, things to write about on your blooper reel. Yeah. Because originally that painting and a lot of very famous paintings were owned by this pair called um, Victor and Sally Gans, who were this middle-class couple in New York who didn't have a lot of money, but they basically put all of their money into buying art. So this was before Picasso became Picasso, and they bought lots of his work. They bought a couple of Van Gogh's, I believe, a lot of the great names of 20th century art. And when they died, basically every art collector in the world started circling around the the children of these, this deceased couple saying, so when are you going to sell those paintings, guys? You know, we could offer you a lot of money for those. And they did eventually put a lot of them up for auction, and this auction was you know, the biggest thing that ever happened at Christie's. And now all of these paintings are primarily owned by people who never let you see them. (sighs) And that is horrendously depressing to me. Mm -hmm. Because what is the point of having art if you're not going to share it with the world? Yeah. But then you get into this whole argument of why is this painting worth more than the others? Like that Picasso painting, Women of Algiers, is a beautiful painting, but is it objectively better than... Um, Klimt's painting of Adele Bloch-Bauer, which it sold for more than, is it objectively worse than a Jackson Pollock painting, which sold for more in a private sale? Mm-hmm. These are all great arts, but how do you judge that? The most expensive painting ever sold was one that was sold privately to the Qatari royal family, no surprise, and it's a Gauguin painting. And it's a nice Gauguin painting, but I wouldn't have valued it at that amount of money. I feel like it's one of those cases where you pay that amount of money just because you can I, I do know one of the reasons that certain paintings sell as much as they do is because of something called provenance, which is a painting or a piece of art can increase in price depending on who previously owned it. Mm-hmm. So something like one of the most expensive paintings of all time is a Rothko, and it was previously owned by the Rockefellers. And it's now known as the Rockefeller Rothko because their name is as important as the guy who actually painted it, one of the great you know, abstract painters of our time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the Gans family, their one was worth a lot of money because they were the preeminent art collectors that weren't billionaires. And I feel like if the Qatari royal family ever let any of this stuff out, which, no offence, but I don't think they will, they won't. then it's going to dramatically increase in price. They'll let them out as soon as they let all those workers out of Qatar for building their World Cup stadium. Yeah, I went there. <laughs> yeah. By the way, if you try to Google um, reports of the Picasso's Women of Algiers sales, one of the news articles that comes up is a new news article in uh, The Guardian discussing the fact that Fox News 
censored the breasts <laughs> when they aired yeah. it. And it's just abs- I know there are a lot of perverts in the world, but I don't know if cubist tits are really going to do it for all of them. But think yeah. of the children. No, let's not. There will be some really pretentious kids if they're getting off to Picasso. <laughs> exactly. I want to show you guys one more thing. There's a, an entire hall dedicated to the statues of Henry Moore. And I haven't heard of him before, but it's a really curious experience to walk through it. Again, it's a really lovely open space filled with pedestals of his statues. Most of them are kind of abstract statues of the human form, but on a scale just a bit bigger than an actual human. So you have the surreal experience of standing next to a like a giant, but still within regular world parameters of a giant, because, you know, they're not like eight feet tall. So I, and I thought that was a really well-created space to, to exhibit that art. Moore is a really big deal in the UK. He's probably one of the most famous sculptors to come out of, at least certainly England. Um, so there's a lot of his work was uh, dedicated to, or donated to a lot of parks and a lot of museums and stuff here. And I think they end up moving a lot of them because they just kept getting defaced because some people are dicks. I like his work a lot. I like that kind of abstract version of the human form. He did a lot of women in his his work, mm-hmm. which I'm always interested to see because art is primarily male. It's primarily mm-hmm. white male, and yet the focus is so often on the female body. Mm-hmm. So if you look at like the great pictures from the Renaissance or the Greek, all the great Greek sculptures, where it's just well, we we mostly sculpt men, so we're just going to sculpt these really bulky muscular figures and then put like melons on them that are slightly <laughs> off ones higher than like other and those are bre- yeah, <laughs> have you those ever are seen a boob in your entire life we know the answer to that's no right <laughs> we know he was also possibly not entirely interested in that or not at all yeah you you sculpt what you know yeah so <laughs> i can't judge the man for that i am very jealous both my grandparents have been to the sistine chapel mm-hmm. and i as, as good as they said it was it was yes it's even better than you think it's going to be Say we want about religion, but they do get some of the most beautiful art. Yeah. Mm. The well, Catholics have got that locked down. That's what happens when you have enough money to pay for that kind of propaganda. That's okay. true. I mean, that's what it was. It was glorifying the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church had money to burn. They still do. Literally. <laughs> This is one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by modern art, because so much of it seems like a response to that particular kind of religious art, albeit in a much more crude and down-with-the-system kind of way. Mm-hmm. One of the most famous examples is the sculpture known as Piss Christ, which is literally just a crucifix floating in some urine. Which is like the, which is basically the, the fart joke of art. And I'm kind of obsessed with art that really pisses people off. Especially when it's usually met I see with the what res- you did there, <laughs> but um, but especially when it's met with the response of that's not art, because mm-hmm. all I think is why isn't it? Right. It may not be good art, but it's still art. I think mm-hmm. we should let we should allow more things to be art. We shouldn't shut that off. It's like when we say, you know, books aren't art or video games aren't art. Why not? <laughs> Enjoy yourself. Stop. <laughs> stop yeah. knocking it down for other people. I'm going to use this piece probably to close down my discussion of the Art Gallery of Ontario because it's a nice diametrical opposite bookend of the Basquiat pieces in being a painting that is 
so hyper-realistic that it's one of those paintings that looks like a photograph, which is why it made me um, stop and look at it. This is a painting by Chuck Close, and it's called Kent. Wow. I try to find for our show notes a good photograph of it because it's, it's very large. It's almost like floor to ceiling. Uh, and when you stand in front of it, you see the bristles on the man's, like from his five o'clock shadow. Like you see every little hair on his face and all the colors in his eyes. So yeah, it was, it, it was really interesting to stand in front of it and almost is like a photograph blown up, which of course it, it actually isn't. It is, let's see, acrylic on canvas in terms mm-hmm. of medium. And I've al- I always like seeing those pictures, you know, looking them up on the internet, the kind of the picture that looks like it's a photograph. So I spent a couple of minutes in front of it. And then as having this discussion, I realized what an interesting um, opposition it is in terms of what art is. Then you have this hyper-realistic piece versus Basquiat's portraits where you see people, but even his self-portraits are very abstract in, in nature and yet still conveying, mostly conveying an emotion. Whereas this one is, I'm guessing it's banking on the emotion you see in this person's expression, but really it's doing that by very precisely showing every feature as opposed to trying to inject something from the artist. Okay, well, that's my 500-word university level (laughs) (laughs) spiel on realistic art versus abstract. I was going to say, we sound very smart. Well, you do, I don't. We'll find out how smart I'm able to sound because I haven't had a lot of sleep. Everything sounds smart to you right now. Yeah. (laughs) So that was my trip through the AGO. I'm really glad I went. I'm really glad I made it to the Basquiat exhibit because I actually didn't know what was happening when I first uh, suggested this topic. And then I looked up the times. It's like, May 10th is the last day. Oh, now I really have to make it. (laughs) Yeah. So when Alina assigned the homework, she said, pick one museum. To which I said, fuck you. It's <laughs> <laughs> so I can't do that. Um, I love art museums. I love older art and stuff that when it was made, it was just stuff. And now it's like, ooh, look at this 2,000-year-old bowl that someone probably peed in. I'm picking to pee this week. Anyway, and now it's in a museum. And there's a bowl that's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art that's a, it's a Byzantine bowl and the the label talks about how it's you know an abstract human form and this that and the other thing and I'm kind of stalling cuz Skype doesn't want to send the file basically the design on the bowl is like this was made by a small child if you look at that that was that's a design that some adult threw the bowl and then gave it to a kid and said, "Here, you decorate this." And then they fired it and now that bowl is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art with a really snooty label on it. And that was made by a 5-year-old. I will bet you everything I have in my pocket, which is currently a receipt from Dunkin Donuts. <laughs> so how old is this exactly? That one, it's easily a thousand years old, probably fifteen hundred. Well, I, I'm going to go dig out some bulls now, and right, exactly, and you know, throw them in somewhere in two thousand years from now, assuming that we are not all dead from a Mad Max type apocalypse. 
That'll... Oh my god, how awesome an idea would that be? Where there's a Mad Max version where someone's going to save all the priceless works of art, even though they're just like children's people. <laughs> Emmy, please. Emmy, please. Thank that... you. Thank you. <laughs> That's a cans winner if I ever heard of one. <laughs> Suck it, Woody Allen. <laughs> save the Play-Doh. <laughs> anyway, so I like older art. I really like Renaissance paintings. I like going around the medieval portions of a gallery and looking just at the clothes and seeing how, if I can get the decade and location, and I'm pretty good at it. So that has led to a lot of air punching in the middle of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which embarrassing, <laughs> and the docents think that I'm crazy, but that's okay. But my first museum was the... Minneapolis Institute of Arts in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And the first painting that I really had like a, a moment with, and I still do, I go visit her on a regular basis, is a Rembrandt of Lucretia. And I don't know what it is. It's the clothing, it's the look on her face, it's the fact that when the... MIA acquired it someone had painted over it so that she was holding a wine glass and instead of that being a blood stain from where she stabbed herself that's a wine stain and they restored it and I mean it's Rembrandt of course it's brilliant and the play of light and dark and everything it's just that's the the first painting I ever had a moment with. Beautiful detailing on like the chain mm-hmm. and on the golden front clothing. Yeah, I can't believe somebody actually said no, no, no. She just spilled some wine on herself. Have they heard of the story? No, of course they they heard the story. They just they wanted a Rembrandt, but not one that was so depressing. Like it's fucking Rembrandt. <laughs> But it must take a real level of hubris to decide, you know what, you're Rembrandt, but you're no actual Rembrandt. Right. <laughs> we can do better than you. Right. It's just some um, 1984 level of censorship, you know what I mean? Right, exactly. And we were taken on a field trip, and the tour that we were giving us is in like third or fourth grade. And we were taken on a tour of the, the treasures that they had at the museum. And this is one of the the first stops, and I was just like, "I like art. Art's amazing." And the other thing that the MIA has, and the MFA has these, and so does the Met, are period rooms. So they have an entire room that is a specific place in a specific time, and it's decorated in all of the in the proper way. And just seeing all of these objects and the furniture and the paintings on the wall in situ just makes my nerd heart pitter-patter like nothing else. And the last time I was at the Met, I like marked out all of the European period rooms, which are not all in the same place. <laughs> and we were like running from one side of the Met to the The Met is fucking huge. Huge. It was an exhausting day. But that's what we did. And it was funny to me. Zora thought it was funny too. She was she was up for it. 
and that's why I like visiting castles and and stately homes and whatever that are decorated for the period. Uh, Hampton Court made me happy like nothing else, and someday I would get to Edinburgh. So I'm sure there are a few there too. Oh yes. Yeah. You will have a wonderful time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, my current favorite piece is a Spanish knight that's carved out of pure alabaster around 1600. And the picture that they have on the website doesn't give you the full experience of where they've put him, which is in a little chapel-like room with a stained glass window and fresco and like he's in a chapel. And it goes back to that whole in situ thing that I like so much. And this is a picture I took of him. And you see the light and the stone. Um, If you've ever been to the Cloisters, which is the rebuilt monastery that they trucked over to New York City, where they have a lot of their religious art, like the whole building is like that. And I can't. It's interesting how sometimes famous photographs of famous pieces of art don't actually convey their their context. And then when you actually see them, you go, oh, I didn't realize this was here. I had that experience with the statue of Nike that's in the Louvre. Mm -hmm. Because you see pictures of the statue. Okay, it's a statue of Nike. You don't realize that when you walk in, at least at the time when I visited the Louvre, which was, you know, in the 90s, so a while ago, mm-hmm. that it's actually on a bow of a ship, also mm-hmm. made out of marble. And when you see it as, you know, the figurehead of a ship, or like she's standing on the... She's kind of doing an I'm a king of the world, really. Right, yeah. This was before Titanic, though, so they did it first. Yeah. Um, the Louvre, when I... I had been told that... You're going to go you're going to go to the Louvre, which I was. And you're going to go see the Mona Lisa, which of course I was, and it's not going to live up to the hype. It can't at this point. Cuz it's you know, it's small. It's like 2 by a foot and a half and it's behind a pane of glass and there's a giant crowd of people in front of it going, "Oh my god, it's Mona Lisa." And you look at it and go, "Why mm-hmm. this? Why did this take over? Why I don't know. I mean, it's it's a very nice painting, but I felt like I'd had a moment with it already. But the Venus de Milo, seeing that in person, that was kind of a, oh, here you are, and here I am, and we're in the same place. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but Alina wanted me to talk about a very specific museum in Boston. Mm-hmm. We did. I really did. Yeah. <laughs> I'm obsessed with this museum. <laughs> and someday Kaylee will visit me and we will go there and uh, she will go, oh my God, this woman was in fact legitimately barking mad, but that didn't mean she wasn't awesome. I am talking, of course, of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which was built, Isabella Stewart Gardner was a extremely rich Boston socialite who is a huge, huge Red Sox fan, um, who wandered the earth, 
collected art. Some of it was amazing. Some of it was, well, that's a thing you paid money for. And she had an Italian villa. I shit you not. It is a legit Italian villa that she built in the Fenway, less than a mile from Fenway Park. She filled it with all of this art and lived on the top floor. And then in her will, she specified that she was leaving it to the city of Boston to operate as a museum in perpetuity as long as they didn't fucking move anything. And they recently added a a secondary building to it that has, like, the cafe and the bookstore and a music-performing art space that... They had to go to the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts to get permission to build it on whether or not that would count as fucking moving anything. (laughs) And the Supreme Judicial Court was like, nope, I think this totally continues on with the, the intent of the will. And it actually kind of restores a bunch of things that they did sort of have to shuffle around in order to make things a little bit more ADA compliant and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But every time they need to make a change like that, they need to go to the court and basically get permission. She she had a Rembrandt. She had a copy of the Queen Mary painting by Holbein and all sorts of other random shit that... Some of it is displayed beautifully, and some of it is like, oh my god, these textiles are going to completely degrade, and we can't move them and preserve them, and it's going to be really sad for us. And she has a number of self-portraits, including this amazing one that my roommate actually has a print of that hangs in their bedroom. Is it the John Singer Sargent one? I think it is a Sargent, but it's not that one. Right. Um, She had a couple of portraits painted by John Singer Sargent, who is a brilliant art artist, and I kind of love him. He did the murals in the Boston Public Library. Like, we, we just have a room full of murals called the Triumph of Religion. It's a thing that we have in our library, because of course we do. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Um, oh, I'm, I'm looking at the murals now. Oh, wow. I know, right? Boston and had it going on. Well it really done, does. Boston. It really does. It's one of the reasons I love living here is we have so many museums. We have the Harvard Art Museums, which just got redone, and they op- reopened a couple of months ago. And one of the reasons that I'm not a real fan of modern art is... Because it seems to require the Emily Gilmore School of Art Appreciation, which is to lean forward. I'm going to see if I can find a video of this scene from Gilmore Girls. But you lean forward, you squint, you step back, you frown, and go, hmm. (laughs) And that's how people know that you're a serious person. I don't know. But I like doing that. (laughs) Like, some art is easier to appreciate than others. Like, we do not need an art de- degree to appreciate leopard print pants on an right. art I, I really think those are... That's the episode title right there. <laughs> on the other hand, you know, some pieces, yeah, you, you do... You lean your head a little bit to the right. You press your lips. 
you straighten, you go, hmm, and walk away. And one of the reasons that I like the British Museum as much as I do is because it's it's not a art with a capital R, but it's a stuff museum. And I love stuff. Yeah, I've love- never had the joy of going to the British Museum, although the first thing that I think of every time I think of the British Museum is that joke that John Oliver made where he said it should be surrounded by crime scene tape because all of that shit was stolen. Right. <laughs> Which is a whole other topic. Which is that a we whole have other topic. So many feelings on. Many, many complicated feelings. Um, so, like, yes, I've seen the Rosetta Stone. That was pretty amazing. I wish I had had time. Like, I need to go back to London because I haven't gone to the North National Portrait Gallery. I have used the Tate Modern's bathroom, though. So have I. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been to Tate Modern. I've just been to the bathroom. Right. I have been in the giant room that should the Thames flood, that's where it's getting directed, (laughs) which that's a legit use of modern art for me, I guess. I'm a terrible person. (laughs) I would love to see more of the Tate than the modern and the bathroom, because one of my favorite things to do when I'm stressed out is to watch videos on the Tate um, YouTube channel. Mm Mm-hmm. So they have like all these lovely videos of the most random people, like British comedians and stuff, talking about pieces of art. Mm-hmm. And then they have discussions of their upcoming exhibits. And they had a really interesting video related to restoring one of the Rothko paintings that some twat defaced by mm-hmm. writing his name on it. And it mm-hmm. took them two years to fix that. And they talk about the process they went through to fix it, which was utterly fascinating. And I spent the entire time thinking, God, I hope that guy gets killed in jail. Yeah. <laughs> Which I know is harsh, but there's something about defacing of art that really angers me. Yeah. Because I know yeah. that there was an entire political movement behind a lot of it. There's a, there's a whole bunch of really messy politics behind the destruction of art because it's a form of cultural genocide. Mm-hmm. If you want to get rid of someone, if you want to really destroy their standing in the world, get rid of their culture. Right. Which is one of the complicated feelings I have about things like pieces from ancient Assyria that are in museums that are not in northern Iraq or Assyria is that at least the winged bulls that are in the Met are safe from ISIS. And that's a particularly contentious issue right now because ISIS are advancing on some of the, you know, the UNESCO sites of cultural significance in Syria. Right. We- it's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. And they've been destroying things right and left. And it's one of the reasons I have so many complicated feelings about that kind of thing of art that's not in the place where it was. I mean, at least at least it's safe. And this is one of the things that's related right now because, of course, the big issue and it has been the biggest issue in British art for like over a century now is the Elgin Marbles. Or the Panthenon marbles, if you want to be proper. Um, yes, okay, coming at this from a very, very privileged position. I'm British. I've never had to go through that kind of political or cultural strife. Mm-hmm. I think that the standing of the British Museum, particularly with the statements they keep giving, they refuse to have debates. They refuse to join with a discussion with UNESCO mm-hmm. regarding the return. And their statement they released was basically, well, we complied with the agreement that was put together in the 1800s when it was a totally different political time and we had more power. So no, we're not going to return it. We'll totally lend them to you if you want. We'll lend you your own property. Right. 
and that really pissed me off and i do think on some level they do have to give them back because it is a different time in greece right now but the precedent that it sets mm-hmm. because the moment you do that every other country and they would have the right to do so would say give me back my stuff mm-hmm. and there's an entire discussion to be had that i don't feel qualified to lead on the preservation of art and keeping it away from that kind of danger like what's going on with isis mm-hmm. um oh and i thought it's I... a little bit colonialist that i'm not comfortable with but like again it's so messy i don't feel like i could i should have written this down really right i thought i saw a, sta- a statement that the greek culture minister just gave like this week saying you know what we're not gonna i'm not gonna ask for it back yeah that that government has a lot more things to worry about right now so right me they've got eurovision for god's sake <laughs> Greece, the important cultural institution i'm not making fun of eurovision i'm really not please don't hit we me should up. do an episode of eurovision can we yes we should oh my god we should but can we just talk about this for a second the headline that the mirror and forbes have relating to the elgin marbles news is amal clooney loses in greece's battle for the elgin marbles no, Greece have just decided to rule out making a challenge. It has nothing to do with her just because she was representing them, you sexist dicks. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it got a celebrity's wife's name into the headline, so that's all that counts. Right, right exactly. They, they were reaching there. Mm-hmm. Oh, before we move on from the Braden's discussion, uh, I just want to mention that part of the reason I want to talk about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is that really weird but famous art theft. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do, <laughs> do not ever, if you're in the Gardner, make a joke, even if it's a really obvious joke, about, oh, this is really pretty, I need to steal it. They won't think it's funny at all. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> where, where so you if you missed in history class, actually did an episode on it so we can link that for people who are interested in art theft yeah um but i mean the short version is a bunch of guys disguised themselves as security guards and took 13 paintings including a rembrandt and um this is in i want to say 95 and the fbi has said yeah we're pretty sure we know who did it but at this point the statute of limitations has passed it was in 1990 um because of the stipulations in the will that you can't move anything, the empty frames are still there. Or if they took the frames, then there's the faded rectangles on the wall are still there. I thought there was no statute of limitation on art thefts, art crime. Uh, That's the report I remember hearing a couple of years ago when they said, yeah, we, we think we know who did it. Hmm. Um, but officially it is still unsolved and the paintings have never been found. Am I allowed I to make a blatant stereotype by saying that it might have been the mob? Uh, I think it probably was. I, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, is it a stereotype if it's probably true? Well, this was, I watched an art documentary in preparation for this, and they talked about the, the people who steal these paintings most are mob-connected. In Italy, for example, mm-hmm. there was a very famous Caravaggio painting that was stolen out of a church. That they were, the, the painting had been specifically painted for this venue, and it fell into, they believe it fell into the hands of the mob, and then the rumour is that one of them, once again, set that on fire. Can we stop setting people's shit on fire, please? Especially when it's really, really famous art that was given to a bunch of nuns. 
Not cool. Not cool, Mob. Mm-hmm. The most there's a really famous example of stolen art that was um, two Van Gogh paintings were stolen from a museum in the Netherlands. I believe it was actually the Van Gogh Museum. The guys were caught and jailed, but they never found the paintings. There is a loophole in Dutch law that says if you stole something and you don't get caught after something like 25 years, it then belongs to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they believe these guys are waiting for this law you know for the the certain amount of time to pass because they're now all out of jail and they've never told anyone where the paintings are so they're just going to wait until they can finally legally own it per dutch law and then sell it and the government and the police can't do anything about it the mona lisa was stolen in the early 20th century it was so was munch's a scream Hmm. Mm -hmm. i I believe it was in the uh, guinness book of records for a long time as the most expensive art theft adjusted for inflation because <laughs> it was stolen in like 1911. It was yes. And yeah, the scream was stolen in 2004, together with another Munch painting. I think Wikipedia. Both paintings were recovered in 2006. If you go on the Wikipedia page for the scream, the Munch painting, you can actually see CCTV pictures of the guys just carrying the paintings out. <laughs> It looks like something out of a Benny Hill cartoon. <laughs> That's right, there's a lot of money in this because it's such an underground, very glamorous thing in a way. I think everyone's seen a Thomas Crown affair and they thought, I could mm-hmm. totally pull that off. I could look that good doing that. But it's, it's obviously far dirtier than that, but the air of glamour surrounds it. I think something like the Isabella Stewart Gardner case, because they've never found any of those pieces, and it's now valued at $300 million mm-hmm. for them combined. Um, it's just one of those great, um, you know, folk legends where, you know, the little man won, even that man was probably tied to the mob. Yeah, that man was probably Whitey Bulger. Have you seen the trailer for the movie? Oh god, no. I can't, I can't, I can't. No, seriously, sit down for this. Johnny Depp looks really good in it. Who are you? I know, I'm really what scared. Happened, but, what happened like, to our Kaylee? I know, I'm really, really worried. Uh, because Cumberbatch is in this movie as well, and I'm just like, what the fuck? Knocking my head against the wall. But, I will say, I can't judge the accent, because I'm not from Boston. My experience with Boston accents is like Mayor Quimby from The Simpsons. He seems to be doing a pretty good job. Like, I know that's really strange and it unsettles everyone and it just goes against everything we've believed. But I'm hopeful. I don't I'm sorry. I process this information. <laughs> I know. Black Mass, the trailer's online if you're interested. It's a very well put together trailer. I, I, I Are you sure <laughs> this isn't you saying, I've been kidnapped, please come help me? <laughs> Are we sure of that? No, we've got a code for that. That code is, wow, Benedict Cumberbatch looks really good. <laughs> and now you know. Constant vigilance. <laughs> so, Kaylee, which museum did you pick for your homework? This was a strange one for me because I have not really had a lot of experience with art galleries. Um, I did definitely our museums um, the big museum for us is the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh which is the one where you went on the day trips it's the the one I used to volunteer at actually when I was at university Um, the thing that's always stood out for me there they have the wonderfully unsettling exhibit on you know animals of the world and it's you know taxidermy central which features two deer engaged in the 
attack positions and they have been stuffed in a way that they are both direct. And seeing that one with my parents was always really fun because I would ask what's going on and my mother would drag me away and my dad would spend the entire day giggling because <laughs> my parents are both 12 years old. Mm -hmm. For me, my, my experience with art and was always something I discovered myself, particularly through art class at school. I used to really like art, but I was terrible at it. I used to believe I was going to be this this great artistic talent, and I it was it never happened. <laughs> so it's been one of my great feelings. But I had a teacher who had this book, and it was a book on modern art, particularly the young British artists of the nineties, who are also known as the YBAs. And they were the ones that kind of revolutionized what we consider art in the UK. They're the, the enfant terrible of, of the art scene. So it was the Damien Hurst, the Tracy Emmons. Um, who else was there? Uh, Jake and Dinos Chapman, uh, Chris O'Feely, Sam Taylor Wood before she started directing Fifty Shades of Grey. And it was just really fascinating to have someone show me a picture of a shark in a tank of formaldehyde and tell me that's art. And it really frustrated me to, because I didn't get why. And I would say, well, why is this art? But why is this also art? And I would point to something like Frida Kahlo, who's someone I also really love. And why is that art when also this is art? And it's, you know, the Mona Lisa or the um, statue of Michelangelo's David. So one of my favorite things that came from that class was just figuring out why it was art and what it meant. So I know you mentioned the modern way of looking at art, which is the look forward, squint, pull back. One of the reasons I really like that is because I like figuring out puzzles. And I don't think there's a better puzzle in the world than weird modern art that you could probably put together in your basement that will sell for $100 million and really piss off people, but it will write enough think pieces on The Guardian to sink the Titanic. And then I was introduced to performance art, and it got even better. So um, I was given a documentary on DVD by a friend for my birthday. It's uh, Marina Abramovich, The Artist is Present. Mm -hmm. uh, Marina Ramovich is considered the grand, the self-styled grandmother of performance art. Um, if you've ever seen a weird clip of a woman screaming on YouTube naked, it's probably a Marina Ramovich or bad porn. It's up to you. <laughs> um, she was very famous for using using the body as her canvas. So there's a very famous piece where she would stand in a gallery and there was a table of items in front of her. So it would be things like pens and pencils and uh, flowers and scissors and random things and then there and was a, a gun <laughs> I believe and she basically there was a note on the table just telling visitors they could do whatever they wanted with these pieces to her so it started out pretty nice people you know gave her flower they put on makeup and things and then it got more and more sinister as it went on sort of you know chaos broke out they were cutting up her clothes they were you know scratching her skin with scissors and then someone pulled the gun on her and they had to fight to get this gun out of this person and then the four hours were up she just stood up walked towards them and they all ran away and to me that is just brilliant it's bonkers and i don't know if it's necessarily art it's more endurance it's more crazy mm -hmm. but i find that utterly compelling and if the documentary was about her um she did a retrospective at the museum of modern art and her piece was called the artist is present and she sat on a chair and there would be a chair opposite her, and you were invited to sit down and stare at her. And this was something that people queued up around the block at the MoMA to do. Um, for People would, you know, 
sleep overnight on the streets to do this. They would sit down and they would just sob their eyes out sitting opposite this woman. There was just so much, you know, power and meaning to them for this. And I think that's amazing. And I, I was, maybe it's because I've never been able to create art, but I love that people can do it with something as simple as looking at you. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that you can necessarily capture on film or sell it in a gallery. Maybe that's one of the other reasons I really like it, because you can't sell it. <laughs> I mean, she got a lot of money to do it, but it's not something that you can like put on your shelf or put at auction. So there is something kind of fleeting about the value of it. Not to say that not to say that performance art is all great. There are some really terrible stuff out there. Oh yeah. Here's your high school essay discussion topics. The artist <laughs> is, pres- is present versus the concept of the death of the author. And would people line up around the block to see Mar- to sit across from Marina Abramovich if she were not an attractive woman? Well, she people look fabulous, did, by the way. <laughs> For a she woman does, in the an amazing red dress. Um, I I don't know, uh, but. I have watched the YouTube video of that um, because the the GIF set of her former partner, Ule, yeah, surprising her basically is a really emotional moment. Oh God, yes, it is a proper tear jerking moment. Ule was the man that she collaborated with and did some of her most famous work. When they broke up, they decided to commemorate this by walking across the Great Wall of China and meeting each other in the middle. And from what I understand, they hadn't seen each other for a very long time, and he turns up at the gallery to surprise her, and you can instantly see how much this means to her, and it's just oh, it's really right, good. like tears in her eyes, and then once when his moment, when his minute is up, she reaches across and takes his hands, and everyone's like, oh my god, and I'm just getting all even thinking <laughs> about it, and I mean, there are just some people who do that for you, mm-hmm. and sometimes there's just no rhyme or reason to it. Like, what, what is going to get your emotions going? Uh, I really I don't have anything beyond that to say. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm fascinated by how she's become this mainstream figure, not just because of that documentary, but she's palling around with Lady Gaga and Jay-Z. Mm-hmm. And there's just something really cool about the most bizarre and obscure forms of art becoming you know, popcorn fair. Say what you want about Lady Gaga, but she did go out and do the research. It didn't translate to good music, but she clearly knew what she was talking about. The Picasso baby thing that Jay-Z did, I'm, I'm not really a Jay-Z fan, so I can't really judge it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I, I feel like there should have been way more puns about art in the rap about art. <laughs> now, go all out. Commit to that. Right. And She's then- now opening um, an institute dedicated to performance art um, it's in New York, I believe. So well, I would love to see how that does. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, she's been plagiarized too. Sheila Buff plagiarized her. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. He... <laughs> when, when he was doing this whole I'm no longer famous thing? I'm no longer famous. Famous. I'm scum for plagiarizing my movie. So he, he did his hair shirt thing by sitting doing uh artist's present type of thing where he like sat with a paper bag over his head and allowed people to come in and yell at him or something and he's just not charismatic enough to pull off that level of crazy okay but wasn't he raped by one of the women he came in was that during that yeah i, I believe that was during that i think that. so yeah oh 
I remember it because there were lots of articles basically saying how, well, because she's a woman and he's a man, it wasn't raped. And I, I think we even had a conversation about this, Kaylee, on Twitter, where we kind of collectively went, oh, go fuck yourselves. Yeah, pretty much. I think we did, yeah. That sounds like something we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like us. Sorry, check yeah. that. <laughs> I will say, if you haven't seen a documentary, Marina Rambich, the artist present, it's really worth watching. It's a bit of a hagiography. It's clearly just, wow, this woman is amazing and everything she does is wonderful. Uh, but it's really fascinating. And if you've never seen any kind of performance art, it's really worth just understanding what it is about this that drives people bonkers in both good ways and bad ways. Mm-hmm. And she's now a mainstream figure of you know, pop culture in a way that I don't think anyone expected her to be. So it's a good introduction. It's a better introduction than yeah. any Lady Gaga stuff, I'm sorry. I, I imagine her 20-year-old self is going, what the fuck yeah. happened to you? <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because Kaylee, almost in the very beginning, said how you like art that pisses off the establishment, basically. But there seems to be this clear progression of all art that starts off pissing off the establishment becomes the establishment at the end of its life cycle. Oh, yeah. Look at oh, Damien yeah. Hurst. Yeah. Look, look at pretty much everything. I mean, Leonardo <laughs> did that thing, and well, look at Tracy Emin, who started out as being, you know, the bad girl of mod, you know, late '90s modern art, and she's now a, a donor to the Conservative Party, complaining about how she has to pay too much taxes. Mm-hmm. Well, look at Damien Hirst. I mean, how much does his work sell for? I actually have kind of a soft spot for Damien Hirst because I 100% believe the man is trolling. <laughs> I think he's very self-aware about the stuff that he does in a way that other people aren't. Like, oh, just off my head, Jeff Koons, who I think is abysmal I don't think you can make photographs of yourself having unstimulated sex with your porn star wife and claim that you have any self-awareness yeah he did that don't google it (laughs) we will not include a link to that in our show (laughs) no but I I am kind of obsessed with Damien Hurst I read a book recently called Randall by Jonathan Gibbs which was like a fictionalised version of a Damien Hurst style figure rising up through the world of modern British art and the debates that he inspired and the the thinking behind the work that he created and whether or not it's art if it looks like art is it art was the sort of big question it asked and Damon Hurst is about to write an autobiography which will be ghostwritten because of course it's ghostwritten the man gets everyone else to make his art why wouldn't his memoir be the same okay there's a question if someone else makes it does it still count as somebody else's art like because hiring a studio is is nothing new. Andy Warhol did it. Da Vinci did it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how much can you do that before you really just become a factory? And not, I, I guess I'm not really asking the question right because Damien Hurst has always done that. You know, he didn't put the, the shark in the tank himself. Mm-hmm. But now he really just, you know, he did an exhibition recently of paintings and he didn't paint a single one of them. Mm-hmm. So, so I kind of, what's, what is the point? It's interesting because it's almost like being a director of a movie, right? The directors, a lot of the time, didn't write the screenplay. I mean, sometimes they did, but if, he, if the <laughs> director didn't write the screenplay, and obviously he's not the, the actor or one of the actors, but the movies are still usually attributed by the director's name, right? It's considered their vision. Yeah. But are they more equivalent of like an art exhibit curator? Because what they are sculpting, what they are actually creating is your experience interacting with this product. No, because, I mean, the director is sort of telling everybody what direction to go in. And they bring their stuff and say, 
now I think we need more glittery shit on Gladriel's dress, or I want, like, even though you might not be able to see this on your screen, I want Daenerys's dress to look more dragon scaly. And I mean, so it's still a collaborative process, but the director is directing it. I mean, I think it's more akin to a clothes designer. Like, Alexander McQueen certainly didn't do all the work designing everything. He's dead now, right? Yes. Yeah. But there's still a definite sense of what makes him a queen. I understand that, but then I think about when Damien Hurst, you know, the dot paintings, which is one of his most iconic pieces, he admitted he only painted five or six of them because, in his words, I couldn't be arsed doing it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a Hurst, but then again, why are those dots specifically a Damien Hurst piece? Yayoi Kusama was doing dots way before him, and she painted them all herself, and she still does, and she's in her 80s. Well, Kaylee, it's like you brought up a Damien Hurst where you said he didn't even paint any of the art. He just put, put the exhibit together, right? Yeah. So how's that different from a curator of a museum? Like, how's that different from what? Well, curators don't tend to put their names on the products and say that they're specifically theirs. There's no credit given to the the people in the workshops of Damien Hurst. Like, there's no bit where it says this exhibit by Damien Hurst was helped, you know, assisted by, you know, all these people. Jeff Koons doesn't do that either. His work is still a Jeff Koons. At least when you make a film, you, you know, there's a credit scene afterwards where everyone Mm -hmm. gets their proper accreditation so what we're saying is art like a collaborative work is art but maybe the art world needs to start crediting it as such i think that as modern the modern art world as it exists today one that is so driven by money is very driven by the name Mm -hmm. and i i have no idea if it was always like that like are people gonna go see an exhibit that's damien hurst or are they gonna go see one that's Damien Hurst, but mostly these other people. Yeah, I mean, they're going because everyone knows who Damien Hurst is. They don't really necessarily need those other names behind it, even if they're aware that he's not the one who, you know, put all the diamonds on the skull. Mm-hmm. I think it would be nice to have some form of accreditation, at least if you're going to hold an exhibit, just have even like a plaque at the end with some names. Yeah. Or at least properly pay these people. I feel like Damien Hurst who makes so much money from his work could at least afford to give this his staff a few bonuses now and then. Right. I mean, when you have made literally the most expensive piece of art, or at least most expensive piece of modern art, which at the time it cost about $50 million to make. This is the, this, the very famous skull covered in diamonds. Mm-hmm. You need to give, you know, a, a bit of a living wage going on there. On um, a piece of music, so like uh, a DVD case or wherever, you know, or an artist's website now where you can find credits for MP3s, I mean, are studio musicians usually credited? They're not, right? Oh, sure. They're in the the liner notes. Are they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But musicians have a union where art students are supposed to do it for the love of the art. And when, if you're lucky enough to make it big, then you can have all the money and not pay your own students. I think love of the art is this big modern myth that's been created because you'll see people say things like, well, you know, Da Vinci wasn't doing it for love of the art. And you have to sit back there and go, well, he wasn't. He had patrons. (laughs) Yeah, he had patrons. 
Very wealthy patrons. Exactly. No, people were paying Chaucer, you know, to write his books, and they were paying Michelangelo and Da Vinci to be brilliant artists. So this this love of the art thing is a no, little. It's yeah, it's a capitalism thing. There's also the problem that art nowadays is as much about being a brand as it is about the art itself. Damien Hirst mm-hmm. is a brand. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Koons is a brand. Even Marina Abramovich is a brand. You may not be able to put her work in a, you know, in a glass case in the MoMA, although I'm pretty sure she probably had the idea. Tilda Swinton had the idea. Mm-hmm. But that name and the reputation it brings is its own form of marketing. And you just have to keep bringing that, really. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the things I find so fascinating about Damien Hurst is he's made so many outrageous things that the expectation is he has to create something even more outrageous. So how do you keep topping yourself like that? Well, you cover a baby's skull in pink diamonds. <laughs> that piece actually really unsettles me. <laughs> yeah, is it a real skull? Yes. Uh, I believe the piece know? is actually called For Heaven's Sake. And his reasoning was when he asked, well, the, the original piece is called For the Love of God. And they asked him, why is it called that? And he says, well, when I tell my mum what I'm going to be doing, she says, oh, for the love of God, Damien, what are you doing now? Which I think is quite funny. Legit. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sending you a link to the skull, the baby skull. But yeah, be careful when you click on that. Do thing. they know whose skull it is? Like, where did, where did he get the skull? It doesn't say on his website, or does it hang on a second? I mean, hopefully it was legitimately donated. I mean, you think if anyone should be credited, it's the person whose skull you got. Yeah. It's that of an infant estimated between 40 and 42 weeks of age and was purchased as part of a rare collection of 19th century human skulls and skeletons oh from Leiden. So you can now buy vintage baby skulls. Oh God. Art! That is... <laughs> and that is, by the way, a whole other thing of exhibits of actual human... And I don't mean body works, where I believe all those bodies were donated specifically to be exhibited, but, like, exhibiting yeah. Egyptian mummies. Yeah, I... I, again, have many conflicting feelings about mummies that... On some level, I feel bad for them because this isn't exactly how they plan to spend their afterlife. But if you subscribe to the theory that you truly are gone when there is no one left on Earth who remembers you, there's that too, right? Yeah, so, and then it almost becomes, in that case, a question of... Is it okay when the remains are so old, there's nobody left who considers this person family, versus right. if it's, say, 200-year-old remains of a Native American or First Nations Canadian person, and then they actually have descendants who know who that this is great-great-great-grandpa. Yeah. And you put them in a museum. That is kind of horrifying. Right. Or there was a another episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class about a African guy that some paleontologists basically looted his grave the day after he was buried and had him stuffed and displayed all over somewhere and and both both of the hosts were like this is gross <laughs> this is terrible this reminds me of in, um, in Edinburgh, the Surgeon's Hall Museum, which is a museum dedicated to the history of medicine. Mm-hmm. And it is full of as many disgusting things as you think there are. There's preserved limbs in jars. There's pieces of tattooed skin floating in formaldehyde. But the most famous thing they have, which you can't actually see unless you're a medical student, is the skeleton of Burke, the grave-robbing murderer of Burke and Hare fame. 
you see the film Birkin Hare, the one with Simon Pegg and Andy Serkis, at the end, they actually go through the museum and show you this um, skeleton while they're playing 500 Miles by the Proclaimers, because it's Scotland. And there's so much about that that is strange to me. I think in many ways it's seen as justice because these men, you know, literally murdered people and sold their bodies to to doctors and medical professors um, so they could be experimented on because there was such a demand for it. Mm -hmm. One of the other things you can see in that museum is a book which is bound in his skin. Which I have a picture of somewhere. You weren't supposed to take pictures, so my sister was just very loudly coughing as I was taking pictures on my phone. (laughs) Well, that's kind of how I got a picture of the Magna Carta. Well, not by your sister coughing. I just stole it. <laughs> the picture. I mean, my my sister's favorite ever museum, Surgeons Hall. It's a wonderfully fascinating place. Yeah, it makes you very glad for modern medicine. <laughs> Don't when, when, when I go. come to Edinburgh, and I have no idea when this will be. We're gonna go. <laughs> well, it's currently shut for refurbishment, so when you do come, it should probably be open by then. Okay, good. Isn't there like? Which philosopher is it whose body is preserved and they wheel him out for meetings? Is it Jeremy Benfoe? I, I, I think don't... it is. I think they actually bring him to like staff meetings and stuff. Hmm. <laughs> Harvard has a couple of books that are bound in human skin that they don't like. Of course, Harvard does. Did they not see the Evil Dead? Did they not know how this ends? Apparently not. And. I, I don't remember which one it is, whether it's Body Works or Body Worlds, but one of them, people are pretty sure that their bodies were um, forcibly donated by the Chinese government. Oh. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here going, uh, but I should say that as a Russian, I have a, a special relationship with dead bodies on display because we kind of have a very known example of this. Right. Right. Well, <laughs> someday someone's going to need to break the class glass and break out Lenin. I've seen that Simpsons episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a documentary I remember watching. It's about you know how they came up with a formula for the solution that like preserved him, and it's all. Uh... What state is he currently in? Because I know that they did this to Ava Perone, and it didn't quite take as well. And then she went missing for a long time, and they returned her, and still. Oh, I like. I mean, last I heard, he was, because I don't know that it's been open to the public for a while. I don't think it is. I don't think it has been for a while. And last I heard, it's fine. But believe me, I if he <laughs> How do you wasn't, know for sure though. Yeah, if he if he wasn't in a state to be seen, this would not be a thing that would ever be public knowledge. They would make right. a fake. They would make a Madame Tussauds fake and put it there just to ensure that it's never, like, known. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if. You know, someday they break in and realize that his body's been, you know, decayed and probably destroyed centuries, well, decades ago. This seems to be made of wax. What's going on here? (laughs) He magically turned into wax. That's exactly (laughs) what happened. Well done, Lenin. I will say that the the Lenin Mausoleum is a fabulously Soviet building. I'm fascinated by that. I just think that there is something incredible incredibly weird and morbid and compelling about pickling your famous world leaders and putting them on display. <laughs> hey, look, I'm going to get a selfie with Lennon. <laughs> I don't think you're allowed to do that, but I bet people have tried. Well, it's not open to the public. What happened so. to Stalin's body? Because they laid him out beside Lennon for a while, and I think they... <laughs> his and his pictures. Because, they, I mean, they're, they're, they've done it to a few people, because they did it to Ava Peron. I'm sure there was someone else. This is going to be a weird Google image result. <laughs> the Stalin Wikipedia page, by the way, is fascinating. 
His embalmed body was laid to rest in Lenin's mausoleum. It was removed in 1961 and buried in the Kremlin Wall necropolis next to the Kremlin Walls yeah. as part of the process of destalinization. So, there you go. That's how you destalinize things? You bury it in the Kremlin? Okay. Oh, you can Google Stalin body too. Once again, weird Google image results. Oh no, the mausoleum is open. Okay. Oh, okay. So it might have been replaced with the wax already. Yeah. There's there's a link says Hugo Chavez and seven other perfectly preserved dead world leaders you can visit. Oh god. Anglefee's world trip. <laughs> <laughs> Selfies with all the dead tyrants. Yep. Oh wait, oh that would be a really long selfie stick, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sure this Brazil this goes back to art somehow. I'm, I'm trying to think of a really great segue. Hang on a sec. Is a preserved dead body of a of a totalitarian tyrant art? If anything is art. <laughs> okay, here's the question: What can we definitively say is not art? Uh, there is graffiti that appears around Boston in random places that says not art. So I guess anything you label as not art is suddenly not art. I don't know. Well, then you're going to go back to the very famous Sissy Napa and Pete piece. I was about to say. So, yeah. Joke's on you, graffiti. (laughs) Say that again. That was delightful. Joke's on you. (laughs) Was that my accent? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I will maintain till my dying breath that Malevich's black square is not art. I don't care that you put the suffering of people or whatever it is your intent was. Painting a black square on a white background is not art. I'm sorry. It just There'll be like tons of tweets at us going, you did not understand. Art needs to have some effort put into it. Well, then Duchamp didn't really put much effort into his fountain. He put it in an art gallery and it's considered art, so... It's literally just a urinal. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm sure there's a lot of discussion there. Like, when you just put a thing out of place, or you want the person looking at the object to kind of finish the metaphor... No, it's like, it's like porn. I know it when I see it. <laughs> <laughs> and those lines are so often blurred when it comes to art and right. porn. Yeah. Yeah. I remember taking a field trip to the Walker Art Gallery in Minneapolis, which is modern art, which is kind of where my disdain for modern art started. But there were photographs of boobies. It's an exciting day. Well, Yoko Ono did a very famous piece where she took pictures of people's bums. But it's Yoko Ono, so, you know. Right. There's actually a really fascinating piece on New York Magazine's Vulture website right now, which is sort of the great defense of Yoko Ono, and it's actually really interesting. Mm -hmm. So whatever your opinions on Yoko Ono, if you have any, it's really worth reading that piece. There is just a wonderful bit. It was like, why do we give this woman such a hard time when we let the wife beater get away with things? So I think we all know why. Mm. That is true. But it, it was very interesting because she actually did a piece that I really like called, um, I think it's called Cut Piece, where she sat down in the gallery and she invited people to cut off pieces of her clothes. It's very similar to the piece that Marina Abramovich did. Mm-hmm. 
but she recreated it like 50 years later and it just it became a completely different piece when she was doing it as a much older woman and it stopped her from singing which is nice okay well <laughs> she did a very bad take, cover you can get. <laughs> she did a very bad cover of I believe it was Firework by Katy Perry which was um what's the word I'm looking for shite that's right <laughs> okay here's one what's your favorite piece of art of all time oh, oh. what why don't you just ask me which one of my toes is my favorite well it's the big one isn't it yeah but right or left Kaylee right or left which one do you bang into doors less with because I bang into my door with my right foot all the time all of them. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, I have an awesome answer for this. Okay, give me your answer. Uh, my favorite piece of art of all time is Cindy Sherman's film stills. Um, Cindy Sherman is a photographer, uh, and she uses herself as her model in every single piece that she does. Uh, she uses a variety of prosthetics and makeup to just create these very strange and surreal and different characters and film stills was one of the first things she ever did and it was a series of black and white photographs where she was in different roles and different places um and the effect you're supposed to get was that they are like the film stills that you see in you know magazines like sight and sound and things like that Mm -hmm. and it was just really fascinating to look at this group of paintings where she's playing all of these very recognizable roles that you would see in a film of that time or a film of any time really so there's the sort of the femme fatale um there's the housewife there's the the broken-hearted young woman there's the um domestic disturbance there's the sort of secrets in the library and it's really great to sort of interpret oh i wonder what scene in the film this is i wonder what's going on here and then realizing that these are all the same women so it's all of these you know the various roles that women play in their everyday lives distilled for one person Mm -hmm. and they're completely iconic and ripped off by everyone including james franco james franco decided to recreate these film stills except it was him in a dress with a beard and he totally missed the point of these incredibly beautiful feminist pieces of art that talk about you know the limitations put upon women by society and how they have to play a specific kind of women and how they're not supposed to be more than one kind. And then for him, it was just like, well, drag. So yeah, screw you, James Franco. I feel like we have a screw you, James Franco quota that we need to hit every year. Yeah. I will say Jared Leto was catching up fast on my nemesis front. He might beat James Franco this year. I think I have a kind of answer to your question. I can think of a favorite piece of art for me to show other people. And I've done this for you guys last time we had this uh, this discussion, and that was um, Ivan the Terrible Kills His Son. Mm-hmm. Which is a really wonderful Which piece. Is, yeah. That's a good answer. Last time I was at the Met, I had a moment with the, the winged Assyrian bulls. They, they're there with a bunch of bas reliefs from a palace, and I was there with my friend Zora, who is of Assyrian descent, and like just like the the power coming off of the bulls, like they were like, just keep walking, white girl. We're not here <laughs> for you. That was really cool. I would love to see them. I think they're stunning. Yep. Well, come to RT and then we'll do an East Coast tour. It'll be fun. 
That would be, we could write so many romance novellas just about that. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Oh. Also, another piece of work I really like, um, which we'll never get to see because it was destroyed, is a Mind Controller of the Universe by Diego Rivera, which was too communist for the Rockefellers. Who'd have imagined? <laughs> if you've ever seen the film Frida, the Julie Tamer film with Salma Hayek and Alfred Molina which is about the relationship between Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. You see the scene where he goes to the uh, Rockefeller Center to paint it, and then they find out that there's a big <laughs> big portrait of Lenin in it, and they think, no, we, we shouldn't put that in, and he refuses to get rid of it, so they just shatter it to pieces. It mm-hmm. has been recreated, I believe, in Mexico. Mm-hmm. But the idea of seeing you know, the real piece, because there are a couple pictures of it still. Um, I'm a big sucker for raging political murals mm-hmm. regardless of what side they're on I just find that kind of expression really fascinating he's not as good as Kahlo though. I mean Frida Kahlo was the, the one in charge there I feel mm-hmm. and I, I love her work as well I love just how those various self portraits of herself and how kind of unrelentingly brutal she was with herself you know there was no vanity there mm-hmm. well Again, we promise that pictures to all of these will be all over the internet. <laughs> yep. If you follow the hashtag art fees, I've been tweeting some of them. So Excellent. I will try and see if it's possible. Yep. And uh, we will set those to queue after we post this episode. Oh, we've also gotten some responses to Kaylee's question for people's favorite pieces of art, and we'll also include that as well in the show notes as well. Please send more of them in, because I love talking about this, even if it's not podcast research. So, right, we just part. like showing off, showing off our museums and our art that we like. Yes, this has been episode thirty-two. We'll be back next month to talk about a thing. I don't know what that thing is. Possibly Eurovision. We'll see. <laughs> we can We're gonna see what we can do. <laughs> so we'll see you then. Bye. You have been listening to Anglophies, a Made of Fail production. I am just so happy to have you back alive because at one point there was booze <laughs> and mechanical bulls like yep. mixing and I was like, she's going to die of mechanical bull and it's... I did fall off the mechanical bull.